We have a brand new book, the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. It's Parshas Devarim. This is the Parsha podcast. We are entering the stretch run of year seven with the help of the Almighty of the Parsha podcast. And we're in the final book, the fifth and final book, the book of Devarim, Parshas Devarim. Let's begin. In our Parsha, Moshe begins his epic departing messages to the nation. For the next few weeks, we're going to read about the speech that Moshe gives the nation before his passing. It's only 36 days prior to the passing of Moshe. And Moshe is preparing the nation for the day after. He is setting up the nation for success. And this is the message he wants to convey to his flock before he hands off the reins to Joshua. And he begins with a rebuke, with admonishment of the nation. They made several mistakes, of course, over the past of the, of the previous 40 years. And Moshe wants to rebuke them on his deathbed, so to speak. But he does it using shorthand. He only hints at the nation's mistakes. He uses a word and he invokes their complaints about the manna at the sea. If only we died, the sin with the daughters of Moab, the Korach rebellion, the golden calf. Moshe is using subtlety here to allow them to save face. He's reminding the nation of what they did. He is rebuking them for past behavior, and trying to ensure that they don't make the same mistakes again, but he does it in a very gentle way. And that's how the parsha and the book begin. And then he proceeds to explain the Torah with great clarity. This is really the theme of the book. Moshe is explaining the Torah to his people, to his nation before he passes. He wants to set them up for success in the day after. And our parsha, he retells Many of the episodes of the previous 40 years, he begins at Sinai, in the aftermath of the revelation, it's time to go to the land, and he reminds the people of his own fallibility. He was not able to lead the nation alone, and he talks, the first thing he talks about, the first thing he mentions in a more expanded fashion is the appointment of the hierarchical system, leaders of 10, of 50, of 100, of 1,000. He then recounts in detail the episode of the 12 spies, you recall, from the beginning of the book of Numbers. They're about to enter the land. They're under the impression that the conquest is imminent. And Moshe selects 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go scout out the land. They come back after 40 days with a report that scares the nation, and the nation rejects the land, and they're punished as a result, and they're condemned to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Moshe also reveals, this is what we discovered for the first time, that this episode the one of the spies, condemned him as well to not enter the land. Instead, Joshua will lead the nation into Canaan. And Moshe then talks about the narrative of the wars on the east bank of the Jordan. He talks about what happened when we encountered Esav and Moab and Sihon and Og. Those are the lands allocated 
to the tribes of Reuven and Gad and half of Menashe. And in Netra's parasha, the speech continues and it begins with Moshe telling the nation of his impassioned pleas to be reinstated, to be granted permission to enter the land. Now, it's a fascinating parasha, very different tone and tenor than the previous books. And it's a fascinating study as to what Moshe tells us and how he tells it to us and what he emphasizes and what he omits. You may recall in last year's Parsha podcast, we suggested an approach to explain why Moshe chose these particular themes, these particular stories of the narrative to begin his speech to the nation. Why does he focus on some things, expand on some things, and completely ignore other things. Now, if you happen to not remember last week's Parsha podcast, I will confess. I have a confession here to make. I didn't remember the details of it either. I had to look at my notes, but I did look at my notes, so now I remember. It's just the way it is. You know, it's been 50 weeks or so, 50 new Parsha podcasts. Sometimes you forget what was said in the past. This week, I want to focus on the episode of the spies. Of course, this is told in Parsha Shlach, and it's revisited in our Parsha. And it's it's really fascinating to see the different angle of the story as it's told now by Moshe on his deathbed. It does help us round out the story, fills in some of the gaps in the story. But it's fascinating. It's interesting to see what elements of the narrative are relayed now, 40 years later, almost 40, 39 years after the events happened, and what is relayed when the incident actually happened. So, for example, in the Book of Numbers, when the episode of the spies was initially told to us, it starts off, God tells Moshe, go, send for yourself people to go scout out the land. The people, the nation, they apparently had no role in initiating this mission. But here, look at chapter 1, verse 22. Moshe tells the nation, Vatikrevun Elaikulchem, you all came to me, and you said, Let us send men in front of us and let they let them go scatter the land for us. And let them tell us what way to attack, what way to ascend, what cities to pursue. And after the people make the request, then Moshe agrees, it was good in my eyes, and we sent twelve men, one person per tribe. And the verse continues by describing their itinerary, how they went across the land, and they took from the fruit of the land. You recall, perhaps, that the fruit that they took from the land, they sampled from the land, it was extraordinary fruit. Back in chapter 13 of the book of Numbers, the verse tells us that they needed eight people to carry a single cluster of grapes. One person carried a fig and one person carried a pomegranate. These were massive. Think of like one pomegranate, like a like a bowling ball or a beach ball. And a cluster of grapes, you have to have eight people carrying it on poles. These were enormous fruits. And Rashi there tells us that Joshua and Caleb, they did not carry any fruits because they sensed that this unusual fruits perhaps would be used by the other spies to malign the land. 
But in our parsha, this part of the story that they brought back some Canaanite fruit, that is mentioned again. And then we read in chapter 1, verse 25, Moshe is telling us that they, they took some fruits from the land and they brought it to us. And they said that the land that the Almighty is giving us is very good. Now, we discussed this in the past. The whole problem with the story of the spies was they said the land was bad. And the land devoured its inhabitants, etc. It seems like Moshe buries the lead over here. So we discussed that in the past. But today I want to focus on how Moshe recounts the nation's reaction to the report of the spies. Moshe tells the people, you refuse to ascend. You rebelled against the word of God. And then in chapter 1, verse 27, Moshe tells them, you slandered in your tent. And you said, because the Almighty hates us, because God hates us, he took us out of the land of Egypt and he wants us to be destroyed by the Amori nation. So this is something we didn't see yet up to this point in the Torah. When the spies shared their report about the land after 40 days, and they showed them the fruits, the nation believed them. And they refused to go, and they rebelled, and they slandered in their tents, and they made a very shocking accusation. It's unbelievable. They said that God took us out of Egypt because he hated us. And he wants us to be slaughtered. This is an outrageous claim. The Jewish people, after the report of the spies, they said that the Exodus, when God took us out of Egypt with great unprecedented miracles and wonders, the ten plagues, the death of the firstborn, the splitting of the sea, all those things that we would say are signs, sure signs of love. The Jewish people are saying, or they said in the aftermath of the report of the spies, that God took us out of Egypt because he hates us. It doesn't seem to be very compatible with the events of the Exodus. Of course, the miracles, the miracles of the Exodus, that's not where it ended. In the wilderness, they had steady miracles at the feet of Amalek, and they have water coming out of a rock, and they have Daily manna and daily quail and the Sinai revelation. And somehow, you know, a year and change after the Exodus, when the spies returned from reconnoitering the land, the people make this shocking statement that God took us out of Egypt because he hates us. Besinas Hashem Osanu. Because he hates us. That is why he took us out. He took us out of Egypt because he hates us and wants us to be slaughtered. This is a very shocking statement, and it's totally inexplicable. We know that there's no hyperbole in the Torah. And Moshe is telling the nation, the Torah is telling us, that after the report of the spies, the Jews, the Israelites, slandered in their tents, and they accused God of hating them. And that the reason why he took us out of Egypt, it's because he hates us. So the first question we have to ask is, how is this at all possible? How can anyone view the Exodus 
as an act of divine hatred of the Jewish nation. That's important to read Rashi here. Very, very interesting comments here in Rashi. First of all, Rashi tells us that when the Jewish people claimed, or they had a sentiment, that God hates us, God resents us, and that's why he took us out of Egypt, that was actually incorrect. This was a misrepresentation of the Almighty's attitude towards the nation. He doesn't hate us. He never did hate us. And he didn't take us out of Egypt because he hates us. Quite the contrary. He took us out of Egypt because he loves us. Continues Rashi. Aval atem sonimo so. But you hate him. And Rashi quotes a proverb. When you have a feeling towards another person, that is what you imagine that person has a feeling about you. So just keep track of what's going on over here. We have a verse. The verse tells us that the people said that God hates us. But Rashi tells us, no, the truth is that God loves us and loved us at the time. But we hated him. And the reason why we thought after the report of the spies, we thought that he hates us because we hate him. And we have this maxim, this proverb, what I think about someone else, that is what I imagine they think about me. The Jews hated God, and that caused them to think that God hated them, even though the truth is that God loved them. And this is all still very mysterious. We don't know why. We don't know why the nation hated God. We don't know why they would even think that the Exodus was a sign of of God hating them. This is going to be addressed also in Rashi in the, in the next comment in Rashi. But as an aside, we have a very interesting point here in Rashi. My grandfather, a blessed memory, wrote a very incisive essay on this Rashi. And he's coming at it from a very different angle. Uh, the subject of my grandfather's essay is the vexing question of how do we engage in a process of self-discovery? How do we discover what qualities, what attributes, what flaws? How do we discover what is harbored within us? You know, it's really hard for us to find what really exists underneath all those layers. We're we're so deluded by self-deception. It's very hard for us to get an accurate read of the actual characteristics that exist within us. How do we discover it? This Rashi, where the Jewish people hated God, and God loved the Jewish people, but the Jewish people thought that God hated them, this is one of the ways to discover, this is one of the processes that we can use to discover what really is within us. When you see what you project outwardly, you can invert that and discover what actually exists inside. If you want to discover what you have within, invert what you project without. Rashi here tells us that the Jewish people had hatred to God inside of them. They didn't know it. But outwardly, that hatred to God was projected in the opposite direction as as if God hated them, as if there was a sentiment of divine hatred to them. And now, Moshe is revealing to them that you thought that God hates you. No, God actually loves you. You 
hated him. The divine hatred that you assumed existed, it's totally imaginary. It's a reflection of your hatred of God. So one of the ways that we can engage in the very secretive art and science of self-discovery is to invert our projections. Interesting. But let's get back to the heart of the matter. Moshe is recounting the events of the previous 40 years, and he recounts the events of the spies. We have 12 men, 12 righteous men sent to scout the land. And after their 40-day excursion, they return with a damning report, and that creates a chilling effect on the nation, and they are condemned to wander the wilderness for 40 years, one year per day of scouting. And now, at the end of the 40 years, Moshe is rebuking the nation, and he revisits this sin, and he reveals the nation's reaction with a new wrinkle. He tells them, you slandered in your tents, and you said that God took us out of Egypt because he hates us. And the truth was the opposite. God loved them, and they hated God. But that was their reaction. And here's the major question. How can anyone interpret the Exodus as a sign of hatred? How do we understand the nation's sentiments in the aftermath of the report of the spies? How can anyone make the claim that an Exodus from slavery is a bad thing. This is addressed by the second comment in Rashi. Again, we're in chapter 1, verse 27. Rashi explains the nation's rationale. Why did they think that the Exodus was a sign of hate? Says Rashi, His taking us out of Egypt was because he hated us, And I'll give you a parable, an analogy. Suppose there was a human king, and he has two sons, and he has two fields. And one field is well irrigated, and one field is arid, it's dry, it doesn't produce. To which son does he give which field? To the son that he loves, he gives him the well-watered field. To the one he hates, he gives him the dry field. It makes sense. If you have a son that you favor, son that you cherish, they should get the better, more productive, more well-watered field. And the one that you hate, that's the one that you give the other field, the one that does not have water, the one that's arid. Continues Rashi. The land of Egypt is well watered. It has the Nile River, the largest river in the world. And the Nile rises and it irrigates the fields around the Nile. One of the most productive parts of uh, land in the world. The land of Canaan doesn't have any major rivers that overflow. It's dry. All it has is a reliance on rain. 
And therefore, the land of Egypt is better. And if God took us out of the land of Egypt, he didn't want us to have that land. And instead, he moved us, or he's moving us to the land of Canaan, which is an objectively worse agricultural land in the eyes of the nation. It must be that we're the hated son. And that's the rationale. God took us out of the land of Egypt because he hates us. And he does not want us to have that wonderful land. That's Rashi's comment, chapter 1, verse 27. It's an amazing thing here. In the aftermath of the spies' report, the nation refuses to assent. They rebel, and they slander in their tent, and they say, God hates us. That's why he took us out of Egypt. And on what grounds are they making this startling accusation? Because the land of Egypt... It's well watered. The Nile River, the Nile River Delta. It's a very productive, very reliable agricultural land. It's the choicest land. The land of Israel does not have this agricultural feature. The land of Israel slash Canaan, it doesn't have the water reliability of the Nile. It relies on rainfall. And rainfall, it's more fickle. It may come, it may not come. And therefore, it is an inferior land. And thus, if God has taken us out of Egypt, the better land, and bringing us to the land of Canaan, the objectively worse land, it must be that he hates us. That is the rationale of the nation. Chapter 1, verse 27. An incredible idea. And very, very problematic. Of course, there's the obvious question. Let's assume that the nation is correct. The land of Egypt is objectively better agriculturally than the land of Canaan. It has the Nile, and the Nile always has water, and it always overflows, and it always irrigates the land, and therefore there's always crops. Okay. But in Egypt, you were enslaved. You garnered no benefit from the fertility of the land. Even if the land in the land of Israel is inferior, if you own it, wouldn't you rather own an inferior land than be enslaved on a better land? Even if we accept the rationale that the land of Egypt is better, it seems like it's an improvement to own inferior land than to be enslaved on superior land. And therefore, it's still problematic. How can the Exodus be viewed as an act of divine hatred? Question number one. Question number two, a little bit deeper. This is how the nation, we're told, responded to the spies' report. But it's not clear how exactly the nation deduced the inferiority of the land of Canaan from the spies' report. Where exactly in the report does it distinguish between the land of Egypt and the irrigation and the water and the Nile versus the lack of that feature in the land of Israel? Where exactly did they reference that contrast from the spies' report? And if you think about it, I would imagine that the spies' report would actually 
prove the opposite. Right? The verse tells us, both here and the book of Numbers, that they showcased some fruits of the land of Canaan, of Israel. And those fruits were comically large. Eight people carrying a single bundle of grapes and one person carrying a massive pomegranate and the other one a massive fig. The land of Israel produces these ginormous fruits and that should prove the opposite. It should show the robustness of the agricultural environment of the land of Israel. Look at the fruits. Look at the size. Look at the robustness. Shouldn't that prove the opposite? It should support the narrative that the land of Canaan is vital and robust. It must be a very rich agricultural land if it can produce such fruits. So how exactly did the spies report trigger this sentiment, oh, God hates us because he took us out of Egypt, which is a better land agriculturally? No, it isn't. Look at the fruits. The report of the spies, you would think, would prove the opposite. Question number two. Question number three. The point of contention here is this feature that the land of Canaan does not have reliable water like the Nile. And the nation, in response to the spies' report, they use this feature as evidence that the land of Canaan is inferior to the land of Egypt. But here's the question. Elsewhere in the Torah, in a few weeks, next week is Parshas Vashanan, and the following Parshas is Parshas Ekev, chapter 11 of the book of Devarim. This feature and this distinction between Egypt and the land of Canaan where Egypt has reliable water, and the land of Canaan has unreliable water. That distinction is featured as a positive, as a benefit of the land of Canaan, and a detriment of the land of Egypt. The verse tells us, chapter 11, verse 10, Moshe is telling the nation, the land that you're coming to inherit, it's not like the land of Egypt. It's better than the land of Egypt. In the land of Egypt, you got to work really hard. You have to give water with your feet. Rashi explains, It is true that the Nile does overflow, but that only reaches the lower lands. What about the higher lands? You have to walk down to the Nile and take your pail and pick up some water, and drag it up the mountain, and drag it up to the higher points, and water it yourself. There is no rain in Egypt. All you have is the Nile. But the land of Canaan, it's better. The water comes from heaven. And you are sleeping on your bed, says Rashi, and the Almighty is giving you water and is pouring the water, distributing the water on the lowlands, on the highlands, on the revealed lands, on the hidden lands, wherever you go. You don't need to work. 
You don't need a schlep. You don't need to pick up the pails and do all the manual work to irrigate the water. The Almighty does it for you. And Moshe is using this to impress upon the people that the land of Canaan is superior agriculturally. This is absolutely stunning. The verse tells us that the land of Canaan is better than the land of Egypt agriculturally for the precise reasons that the Jews said the opposite. Here are the facts. Egypt has reliable water via the Nile, but no rain. Canaan does not have reliable water. It does not have the same water supply, but it has rain. That is agreed by all. But how do we take that feature, that distinction, how do we overlay that on the question of which land is better? After the spies report, the nation said, they slandered in their tents, that because of this distinction, Egypt is better. And the exodus from Egypt to Canaan is a sign of divine hatred. And the Torah and Moshe tells us the opposite. This same quality, that the land of Israel does not have rival water, and the land of Egypt does, this same distinction proves the superiority of the land of Canaan. And thus, the exodus is a sign of love, not hate. The Jewish people thought that God hated them, but the truth is God loved them. And the exodus was a sign of love, because the land of Canaan is actually better. The people thought that the land of Egypt is better. And God says, no, 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 you have it wrong. The land of Canaan is better. Agriculturally, God says, the land of Canaan is better than the land of Egypt for the exact same reason that the nations slander in their tents. And they said that the land of Egypt is better. Actually, for that same reason, the land of Canaan is better. So we have a disagreement. We have the facts on the ground, the facts in the water are agreed upon. But God says that that fact proves that the land of Canaan is superior. And in the aftermath of the spies' report, that very same fact is used by the nation to say that the land of Egypt is superior. What is going on over here? So I want to suggest an approach. And I think this is an idea that's much more broadly applicable than just the subject of agriculture. It's something which gets to the heart of what we stand for as a nation. And more broadly, it's really what the Exodus was all about. The land of Egypt, it has a reliable water source. There's always water. There's always irrigation. There's always crops. Every year, like clockwork, the fields around the Nile will yield produce. We know in the Torah, Genesis, whenever there's a famine, we go to Egypt, or at least we try to. Why? Because if we have no rain in the land of Canaan, we have no water, we have no food. But in Egypt, there's always food security. There's always predictability in crops. The food each season is 
reliable. And now, of course, you have to schlep the water from the lower lands to the higher lands. And yes, an excellent rainy season will be preferable. You don't have to do all that manual work. But there's always food in Egypt. That's the proposition of Egypt. The land of Israel, the land of Canaan, it's a different proposition. When it rains, it is fantastic. You could be asleep in bed. You're in your third dream. And your fields, the lower fields, the higher fields, the revealed ones, the hidden ones, they're all being watered by God from heaven. It's the absolute best. No, no schlepping, no sweat. It's paradise. But that comes with the possibility of famine. If there is no rain, if God is not smiling to you from heaven, what's your backup plan? What's your food situation? You have no plan B. There is no safety net of the world's longest river. There is no security. There is no predictability. The land of Egypt has a high floor and a low ceiling. Very little variance in Egypt. In the land of Canaan, there is no floor. And there is no ceiling. There is very high variance. When it rains in the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan, it's way better than the land of Egypt. Look at the fruits. The fruits are massive. In Egypt, there's a lot of stability. There's a very narrow band of variability. There's always food. It's never off the charts. I guess the seven years of Joseph are the exception. In the land of Canaan, you can have famine, but when there is a great yield, there's a great season of crops, it could produce something completely off the charts. And this is how the nation interpreted the report of the spies. They show them, hey, look at these fruits. They're massive. That cannot happen in Egypt. You're always going to have fruits. They may be small and scrawny and mediocre. They will never be that massive. If the fruits of the land are so big, it must be that it's continued to rain. And maybe this year was an especially productive one. But that in itself reveals the inherent lack of reliability of the land of Canaan. We'd rather have the security, the stability of always having food come what may. And they slandered in their tents. God took us out of Egypt because he hates us. Which agricultural environment is better? Canaan or Egypt? There are pros and cons of each. It depends what you want. If you are optimizing for stability, you want reliability, you want predictability, you want to avoid famine. If that's all you want, Egypt is preferable. But what if you're optimizing for greatness? What if you want off-the-charts accomplishments? You want to do things that cannot be done anywhere else. You want to go all in and achieve things, accomplish things that cannot be done anywhere else. If that's your agenda, then the land of Canaan, the Holy Land, is peerless 
but it's hard. And there's no safety net. It demands faith. It demands a relationship with God. It demands a gift from God. It demands rain. You're at the whims of the Almighty. And if it's not raining, you pray. And if it's not raining, you have to wrestle with repentance. And yes, when God smiles upon us, we have unimaginable abundance. And when he doesn't, we have famine and devastation and hunger and misery. The land of Canaan it means living life on a knife's edge. You're, you're always on the precipice of famine. You're always an inch away from bankruptcy. But you're also an inch away from absolutely transformative greatness. You're going to have to work hard. You don't have this reliability, this fallback option of the Nile. But if you work hard and you push yourself, the land of Canaan is designed to facilitate the possibility of absolute greatness. There is no fallback of mediocrity. God takes us out of Egypt and brings us to Canaan. And that is an act of love. He wants to give us the opportunity for greatness, to live a highly consequential life, to be able to aspire to unprecedented things, to unprecedented heights. After the sin of the spies, we look at that and we say, no, 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 that's not what we want. That's a downgrade from the stability of Egypt. And yes, of course, things were bad in Egypt. We were enslaved, but there was always food and someone else needed to worry about it. There was some degree of stability notwithstanding its mediocrity. You could live an easy life, and you don't need rain, and you don't need faith, and there's never famine. There's always food. For someone who wants the comfort of stability, of stable mediocrity, being extracted from Egypt and being placed in the high states life of the Holy Land, That's a downgrade. And if God does that to you, it must be because he hates you. Now, as we mentioned, this is not just about agriculture. The distinction between Egypt and Canaan and the Holy Land, it goes way beyond agriculture. Abraham received a blessing. His blessing was, I will bless you and I will increase your descendants and they'll be like the stars of the heaven and like the granules of sand on the world's beaches. The land of Canaan, the offspring of Abraham, the bargain of Abraham, the proposition of Abraham is this polarity. This variability. There's stars and there's sand. There's gargantuan fruits, a cluster of grapes, and you need eight men to carry it on one side. That's the star. And then there's famine. And all you have to chew on is some granules of sand. 
And this is the blessing of Abraham. Your life will matter. Your actions will have consequences. Your relationship with the divine will really, really matter. And you're going to have very polarized outcomes. That's a blessing. And the people had a hard time accepting it. And in every area of life, there's the Egyptian way of doing it, and then there's the Holy Land way of doing it. And there are those who crave stability. Give me the security of Egypt. Yes, it's objectively bad. Yes, it's mediocre. But I know what I'm getting. And there always will be food. These people want to avoid shooting for the stars in the land of Canaan, but also risking the sand. And those people will choose safe, stable, predictable, reliable mediocrity over the opportunity to achieve something unprecedented. And we left Egypt. We had the Exodus. And the whole process of the Exodus, it's a transformation from the Egyptian way of life to the land of Israel way of life, to the possibility of unparalleled greatness. Yes, you're going to need to work really hard. You have to push yourself to the extreme. But taking us out of Egypt was taking us out of a life of stability, of predictability, of routine. You know what's going to happen. You don't have to worry about whether there will be water to irrigate the lands. In Egypt, we always knew where the food came from. We always knew how the day would end. We always knew how life would go. That we left. This is not the environment ideal for the descendants of Abraham. The Exodus was a transformation to a life of polarity, of stars and sand. Mediocrity is over. Stability is over. We left, perhaps to our disappointment, but that's over. Think about what happened in the Exodus. This is not a mediocre night. The highs of the Exodus are coupled with the great risks the potential downside. God is sweeping throughout the land, killing every Egyptian firstborn. And that's a sensational miracle. But if you leave your home, you don't paste the blood of the pastoral offering on your doorpost. You are dead. Stars or sand. The splitting of the sea is great. But what was it like a minute beforehand? Where's the stability? Where's the safety? None of that. You're living on a knife's edge. And the highs are unprecedented and the lows are way worse than Egypt affords. For 40 years, Jewish people in the wilderness. It's a story of two extremes. If you're righteous, it's great. You're a star. If you're wicked, there's a very good chance you won't make it. 80% died in Egypt. How many people died in the spies and Carlos Rebellion complaining about the food and the manna and the quail? 
This is a transformation to a life of high stakes. Think about it. You know, manna, what a miracle every day. Parachuted to your door, food for your family. But no food for tomorrow. And you're in a scorching desert. That's a Canaan life. That's an opportunity for greatness with the risk of famine. It demands tremendous faith. It's very unpredictable. The land of Canaan has enormous fruits, but it's not reliable. And the people resisted, and they say, why did God do this to us? Why did he throw us to the life of uncertainty? Why did he take us out of Egypt? If he really loved us, he would have given us the easy life. But the truth is, because he loved us, he's giving us the hard life, the meaningful life, the consequential life, the variable stars and sand life, and the opportunity to have those fruits, to have those outsized outcomes. And we resented it. And perhaps we continue to resent it. We often want predictability, stability. It seems like we still need to have some extrication from Egypt. We look at uncertainty and and chaos and upheaval and challenges and crises. We don't want that. We want to avoid that. We don't want that pain and difficulty. We don't want that uncertainty. But the Almighty positions us in a way that we are presented with those challenges and that builds us and that transforms us and that enables us to squeeze the greatness out of us just as Moshe squeezed the water out of the rock. Would you rather be safely employed? Someone else will worry about your paycheck. You'll get your W-2 at the end of the year. And you'll have your benefits and your 401k matching and you're about to wear casual on Fridays and some time off. Would you want that? Or are you willing to have the uncertainty and the unpredictability and the danger and the potential enormous upside of going on your own? Do you want Egypt? Or do you want the Holy Land? The Hebrew name for Egypt is Mitzrayim, which means boundaries. Egypt is all about boundaries. There's a floor and there's a ceiling and there's not much room really for any variability, any variance in between. You'll never starve, but you'll never have gargantuan fruits. Canaan is the land of no floor and no ceiling. There is no floor. There is no safety net. But you know what else there isn't? There's no ceiling either. There's no limits. It's a heritage without limits. Egypt is reliable. But Canaan, you have the opportunity to achieve the stars. But you have to risk the sand. And there's something nice about Canaan. There's something thrilling about such a journey. Yes, it's painful. And yes, we may bristle at such a life and we may hate it. 
But history shows us, experience shows us, that there's nothing as rewarding of having to work really hard, having to push really hard in every area and actually doing something and not just relying on mediocrity. I always think about writers. The writers always say that the thing that they hate more than anything else in the entire world is writing. And the thing they love more than anything else is also writing. There are no writers in Egypt. Choosing to write is choosing a life of Canaan. It's something which you hate, but really you also love. And ultimately, if you can do it, nothing will bring you more satisfaction. Parenting. Yes, the parent. What gives you more aggravation than anything else in the world? It's their children. And what gives you more pleasure than anything else in the world? It's your children. And today it's in vogue to say, we're going to live a child-free life. It's so bad for climate change. And your kids are so dirty and they wake you up in the middle of the night. They're so expensive. It's such a hassle, so much noise. It's so much more convenient to not have children. And seeking comfort and convenience and safety and predictability, that is an Egyptian attitude. To choose greatness, to choose the possibility of eternality, to choose to care for another human, to care for a child, that's something of a choice of the land of Israel. And we have a tendency to opt for the Egyptian way of life. We want to retreat to safety, to predictability. And it's really hard for us to see in the lack of stability, in the lack of reliability, it's hard for us to see in that a blessing. And therefore, the exact same quality that the nation decries about the land, it's also presented as a great attribute of the land. The fact that the land does not have a reliable water supply It's an asset and a liability. If you want stability, it's a curse. If you want greatness, it's a blessing. Israel had two prime ministers that opined about the fact that all the Arab lands around them are engorged with oil and Israel doesn't have basically any that we found. And Golda Meir famously said that she has only one complaint about Moshe. Why did you bring us to the only place in the Middle East that has no oil? I remember once hearing an interview with Netanyahu, and he said the opposite. He said, it is to our great fortune that we don't have any oil. Because that forces us to be industrious, to be creative. We can't just rely on the safety, the security, stability of oil. With developed technology and innovation, those limitations, those lack of safe, secure resources, that compels us to shoot for the stars. The Saudis really never need to worry about income. They have, like the Nile River, always overflows. They're only, the only dilemma that they have is how much oil should we pump? How much money should we make this month 
versus next month. It's easy. And they also, of course, have the foreign workers do all the actual work. Really easy. In the land of Israel, nothing is easy. Nothing's easy. But there, more than any other place in the world, is the possibility of greatness. Now, I know we're going a little bit over time here. But I want to give maybe a small little window into what might actually be behind all of this. After the sin of the Garden of Eden, God dispensed punishment. Chapter 3, verse 14. Pi, verse 314. God tells the serpent, you are cursed from all the other animals, and you will eat dust. Is that a blessing? Or is that a curse? It's been asked, it's been observed. If you eat dust, you will never go hungry. Dirt is plentiful. You don't need any irrigation. You don't need any crops. You don't need any seeds. You need nothing. The snake, the serpent, is given a curse. Then I'll never be hungry. Maybe that's a blessing. This, I think, is the root of the attitude of Egypt. Yes, the serpent never goes hungry. But he never has the opportunity to achieve greatness. And he'll never know the experience, the exhilarating experience of making something, of doing something, of achieving something, of unlocking something, of pushing yourself to the limits, and maybe a little bit past your limits, and discovering something sensational. He'll never have the experience of smashing your head against the wall, of having a breakthrough after countless aborted attempts, of witnessing your handiwork flourishing. And that's a great curse. And the truth is, we may all have some of the serpent living within us. We still crave stability and reliability. And although God loves us, we may hate him. And we may misinterpret things and think that he hates us. The serpent is the curse of Egypt. And that is what makes us hate God. And this serpent is something we still have within us. And this is what causes us to be hateful towards God. Adam is told that you have to work really hard to get your food. It's almost the opposite curse of the snake. The snake is told you'll always have easy food. And Adam is told you'll never have easy food. Is that a blessing? Or is that a curse? Adam's curse is only a curse because some of the venom of the serpent came along with it. Some of the venom of Egypt, of preferring the, the easy, mediocre life, was given to him as well. Adam needs to contend with the serpent that prefers safe mediocrity. But God, in his love, is telling us that that's actually for your benefit. He took us out of the mediocre comfort of Egypt because he loves us. He loved Abraham and blessed him with a life of stars and sand. Average is over. Safe mediocrity is not an option. 
We're living on the edge. And there's nothing that we can do about it. But now we appreciate it's actually a better life. It's a more meaningful life. There's more upside to it. The Talmud tells us a person prefers a single unit that they worked on more than nine units that they get as a gift. Sometimes it's hard for us to see. But the hard life, the life with no floor and no ceiling, it's better. And we may feel otherwise. We may crave the comfort, the stability of Egypt, albeit with the limited upside. But that is only because we still have some of the venom of the serpent coursing within us. We're still trying to leave Egypt. We may hate it. But ultimately, we have to realize that the Exodus, the choice to live a high-stage life, that is for our benefit. Today, we're not going to have a question at the end of the podcast for reasons that I cannot share with you right now in the podcast. If you want to know, you send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I appreciate your time and your attention. Hope you have a wonderful day, a splendid rest of your week, a terrific, uplifting Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Dot com.